Now, last week, Amos absolutely torched the upstanding citizens of Israel. He looked out at the most prominent people, the people that had the most extravagant riches, the most political pull, all the people that the, the, the common people wanted to be like. He looked at that crowd, and Amos calls these people out for being the worst offenders of God's law. But people weren't paying attention to Amos' call to repentance in that sermon. So his downright insults, uh, so if his downright insults weren't working, rather, he tried resorting to scaring these people awake from their spiritual slumber by listing out all the covenant curses that Moses said would fall on them if, the, if they didn't pay attention to God's laws. And Israel had triggered all these things with their rampant idolatry and injustice. And so God said he's going to take away their food, their water, their crops, their health, and their safety. And yet, each and every time these things came into Israel's life, Amos says, and yet, Israel, you still did not return to the Lord. It seems that nothing was getting through to these people, not the prophet's inflammatory remarks about their own people and their, and their uh, luxury, and, and not his harsh warnings, or rather God's harsh warnings, through ecological and, uh, crises and, and social unrest. Nothing seemed to be shaking these people out of their stupor. And so, with a sigh, we hear God finally say to Israel, Fine. If you won't pay attention to me in this life, then prepare to meet your maker in the next one. He's threatening them with utter extinction. And it would seem that Israel is beyond saving at this point. All of the things that Amos has been preaching uh, for these many days and months is just going right over their heads, in one ear and out the other. So here's God's chosen people. This is the situation. They have, they're a nation that were, were rescued from slavery and poverty and humiliation and given a land and a purpose and everything they could ever need and a mission to be a blessing to the rest of the world, to be a nation of priests and missionaries. And yet they've squandered all of it. All the blessing that God gave them so they could serve him, they've used none of it for that purpose and have only served themselves. They've used all of God's material blessings only to enrich themselves. And the most sinister part of all is they did this at the expense of their own fellow citizens. They would take advantage of the poor and needy and to add insult to injury. After doing all this, they would waltz into the temple in Bethel and bow down to a golden cow and say, this is our God. And so we've reached an absolutely crucial turning point in the book of Amos. Israel has continued to reject God's message time and time and time again. And since they won't repent, the only thing Amos is left to do is lament their inevitable and coming destruction. So even though Israel is currently a military and economic powerhouse in the ancient world, from their perspective, they look strong and unflappable. Amos sees through the facade. He sees that this is a spiritually dead and soon to be physically dead, militarily dead, economically dead nation. Jeroboam II cannot save them from what the Lord has coming for them. And so 
He comes to them now in this sermon and funeral attire, wearing probably dark clothes. It's very likely, according to ancient custom, he would have shaved his head, that he would have fasted, that he would have poured ashes on his body, and he would have wept for Israel, for the sorrows that are coming on them, singing out this funeral dirge for a nation that thinks they're doing well, but who God sees are rotten to the core. But even in the middle of this lament, Amos shows that salvation is possible. It's not possible if Israel relies on Israel to be saved. But if only some of them would seek God, they would live. That's the incredible message that God has for this wicked nation. Before being swallowed up for good in the day of the Lord, God says, Israel, Seek me, and you'll live. It's that simple. They don't have any hoops to jump through except turning to the Lord. Even God's just judgment on wicked and evil and selfish people is lined, is overflowing with abundant mercy. If only they would turn to him. So let's look at these first three verses together. Amos sings of Israel in a tragic minor key here. He compares the nation to a young woman right on the cusp of adulthood, a lovely young girl that has all the potential before her. She's now of marriageable age. She could be having a family. Who knows what her legacy could look like? Who knows the beauty she might grow into, the family she might leave behind, uh, all the things that she might do to help the city to prosper. All of that potential is ahead of her. That's what Amos says Israel is. But she's also something else. She's not only that beautiful girl, but now... She lies dead on a battlefield. This disfigured, rotting corpse with no one to bury her. He draws us in with with something that sounds like it's going to be a, a sweet song and then immediately turns it into a horror movie, practically. It sounds extreme to us to sing of a person, this young, beautiful woman, and now she's a dead, mangled corpse that everyone's forgotten. That sounds extreme to us. But it's an image that is supposed to shock us and jar us. Israel is this young girl full of potential, full of uh, possibility. But because of her own foolishness, Because she is chased after her own wisdom and decadence, now she lies totally discarded, as if she were lower than an animal. Human refuse. That's where Israel is spiritually. They have a lot of wealth, they have a lot of really fancy religious services, but she's a she's a dead she's roadkill in human history. That's how God sees her now. Israel could have been a light to the world, but now they're no more common than a piece of trash discarded by the highway. And what grief Amos feels for these people. Because God is saying, through Amos, that Israel has no hope. They've stopped listening, and so she's as good as dead, with vultures and jackals being the only companions she has to attend to her. Now, If they didn't believe that to be true, 
and they probably don't, then he says, the troops of Samaria have literally been decimated and will be decimated. Decimated, of course, means taken down to a tenth of what you once were. So, for instance, we read in these verses that 90% of Israel's military has been killed. If they had a thousand soldiers before, now they're down to a hundred. If they will have a hundred that go out and try to protect the city, they'll come back with only ten surviving. Neither Israel's economy nor her military, nor her culture can save her from the mess that she's in. Nothing Jeroboam II can do in his administration will help these people escape God's judgment. No politician, no cultural practice, no market strategy, no community service, nothing can save Israel because God has already pronounced her dead and gone. Even if Israel doesn't see that, See, God sees the spiritual reality. He sees the heart of the human being. He knows what the future holds. And it doesn't matter how cocky or confident we might be about our life. What he sees and says is true is the reality. Whether our vision lines up with his or not. And so we continue in this passage. This, this almost It's not only a lament, but uh, also a praise song to God and a and a call to repent to Israel. Let's look at verses 4 through 17. And yet, in the middle of this bleak image that we've been given, this with shocking, gruesome metaphors, God, through Amos, still begs Israel to wise up, to seek him and live. Now, commentators, have I've discovered, have been kind of divided over how to think of this. Because who actually is being addressed here? Who is Amos saying, turn to God and live? Because it would seem that God has said, Israel, you're done for. It doesn't matter what you do now. You're toast. So is that kind of just a vain or empty threat of God? Or, and I think this is actually what the case is, um, God is serious in his pronouncements, but he's looking for any stragglers, any Remainders, any remnant that would still possibly, potentially turn to him. It's like when um, perhaps uh, God and, and Abraham are talking over in, I think, Genesis 18, and God's about to lay waste to Sodom and Gomorrah because they are acting, they are acting there just like Israel is acting now. And Abraham, you remember. Don't be angry with me, but what if I could find 45 good people there? He says, well, I wouldn't destroy it. Okay, well, hold on with me. What about 40? And you remember how the story goes. It's almost comical to a point. Until it gets down, I think, to 10. If you can find 10 righteous people there, I won't destroy it. I think that's kind of what is, is happening here. If there are any righteous people in this city, perhaps the Lord would seek or the Lord would spare them if only he would, they would rather seek him, they could live. God, in his mercy, is still extending hope. He's showing that although Israel is going to be judged harshly, the promises that he made to Abraham that the, 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 the world would be blessed through Israel, he's not given up on that, even if Israel has. 
If only somebody would repent of their national and personal sins and turn to the Lord in faith and obedience, there could be salvation. God sincerely then says, seek me and live, anybody that hears this message, in verse 4. But notice what he also starts to address. He says, seek me and live. Don't go to Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba or wherever else you can find a religious shrine or temple. Don't rely on your religion and your worship to save you. Rely on me. Because God says he'll take those other communities, Bethel and Gilgal and all of them, into exile. The cathedrals can't save you. The, the cardinals of, uh, of, of, the, of the Roman church can't save you. The elder board at the local Baptist church can't save you. Religion can't save you. Again, verse 6, the Lord says, Seek me and live, but don't seek the house of Joseph. In other words, don't rely on your national or ethnic identity because God will spread a fire of judgment that will eat those people up too. Don't rely on being an American. Don't rely on being born of whatever ancestry. Don't rely on those things. Religion and nationality never have saved anybody. Those are the places, in fact, often some of the worst sins are committed when we idolize religious ideas and ethnic or natural, national or cultural identities above being God's people. That's where some of the most insidious sins in human history have ever happened. Verse 7 says that those places are where those places, religion, nationality, are where people are turning justice, which is fair and right and equal treatment of other human beings. They're turning that into wormwood, bitterness, death. In those places, that's where they're throwing righteousness, which is just another synonym for justice. That's where they're throwing that to the ground like it's trash. Religion and nationality, when we pride ourselves on, on, on being this kind of a Christian or from this country or part of the, 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 the region, when we pride ourselves on those things more than we trust in God, that's where we get into all kinds of trouble. And nowhere is safe. Not the marketplaces, not the temples, not the courtrooms, not even their homes, because Israel is thriving in their prideful injustice. See, justice comes from God. God is the one that tells us what's right and good. When we went after our own wisdom in the garden, ever since then, we've never been able to balance what's right and good. We always look at power and status and wealth, the people that have the most and can do the most. Those are the most important people. That's the way that we look at things. But justice comes from God. He defines it. And God's justice is fair and good and equitable. In fact, not only that, it's gracious and merciful to other people. But Israel looks nothing like God. God gave ten commandments. And you've heard pastors say this before. The first set is about 
worshiping God properly. And the second part is about treating others fairly. All of the law and the prophets, Jesus said, could be held on those two things. You love God with your all and you treat everyone like you want to be treated. That is what the law is all about. That's what justice totally looks like. Worshiping God, who is deserving of all worship and being good and fair. But these people look nothing like that God. They don't adhere to his covenant at all, which is why Amos here disgustedly says, you rich people charging these exorbitant taxes and interest on the poor and not caring as they're withering away. It's why they bribe judges to rule in favor of of, of political families and, and strip everything away from the people that actually need help. And it's why there is such rampant poverty and misery and sickness in their country that has the resources, that has the God-given wisdom to help people, and they're doing none of it. And that's why God is demanding, Israel, turn from your financial and social and political and religious and national wickedness and repent before me so that I don't kill you. God wants to forgive and restore sinners. He wants to lift up the needy and provide for them, and he wants to forgive these monsters that have been hurting these poor people. But ultimately, if they don't turn in faith and repentance, we read in verses 8 and 9, the God who made the galaxies and constellations, the God that hung Pleiades and Orion in the sky like we hang a picture on the wall, the God who controls the ocean's tide, the Lord is his name. I am is his name, and he will not let Israel mock his name any longer. He'll bring destruction even on the strong and the mighty. And the so-called greatest country to ever live at this point is no match for a holy God. But in verses 10 through 13, the Lord brings a heavy indictment against his people against them when they were at the pinnacle of their power and prestige because they've become a people who hate when the guilty are convicted. They hate when people speak with integrity. They hate what's actually good and right and just. Instead, they love bribery and lobbyism and manipulation and deceit and anything that allows the rich and powerful to remain so while the poor stay miserable and subservient. It's just exactly what the Lord is against. So he says in verse 11, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and the needy and you exact such terrible taxes on them, here's your punishment. The people that you use to do practical slave labor, to cut your fine houses made of precious stones, you won't ever get to live in those houses. And the farms you own with the figs and the grapes, you won't ever get to taste anything from those vines. Because you have paid your people so miserably. 
The Lord says that not only is this a crime against humanity, not only are you treating people unfairly, but this is a sin innumerable against him. See, folks, it should terrify us when we think that the Lord takes offense at how we treat the neediest people amongst us. That should scare us out of our mind. It's no wonder why Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that the way we treat the least of these, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the homeless, the imprisoned, the sick, that's the way we treat God. Jesus said that. So it's with great sorrow that Amos preaches those who have insight. And he's talking about people, I believe, that have uh, the power to run the country. The people that have insight into all the little details and all the nasty little dark sins and secrets that keeps Israel chugging along. Those people in the end will be silenced, meaning they'll die. Their power to make great proclamations and speeches to the masses, it'll come to nothing. Because the days and everything about these days are evil. You know, folks, I can't help but reading this stuff, feeling that this, these kind of warnings are stretching out across through the centuries and being spoken by God himself to churches like ours even today. The greatest temptation for us as American Christians today, I believe, is to take the side of whatever political or cultural power so that we can live in comfort and we can live at the expense of those people that we were sent to minister to. See, politicians love to court the evangelical vote. They love to go after us with uh, promising all these things because they realize if that we will be on their side and we can give, we can put them in places of power, we can give them money and they'll dangle whatever carrot they can to get us to put them there. But our concern shouldn't be siding with cultural or political or corporate elites. Our concern as people of God, should be in preaching and living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. We don't, we don't go out there and do stump speeches for anybody but the king of kings who secured his kingdom for lowly sinners like us by going to a cross and being executed so that we who have been redeemed by him might also in turn mimic him by going out and looking after the lowly, protecting the disadvantaged, and even welcoming sinners and strangers to the table of God. That's the mission of the church. That's where true power lies with Jesus who came washing the feet of his disciples not sitting on a throne, whipping them around to get him more bread and wine, but loving them even unto death. That's where power is. That's where the future is. See, for too long, we evangelicals have been hiding behind our politicians and our little silly culture war stuff. 
We look to presidents and congresses, to banks and corporations to protect our personal interests, no matter who these people assault and rob to get it. They want us to hate not only our enemies, but even our friends. They would love to see us cast away friends and family who don't line up with us politically. That's what the powerful of this world want. They want our devotion. They want our worship, even at the expense of what we're called to do as God's people. But the Jesus Christ whom we confess came to love sinners and sinners only. He came to lift up and to heal and to restore and ultimately to forgive all manner of people. And Maranatha, I'll give it to you straight this night. If our politics and our financial policies cause us to hate certain kinds of people, then we may be worshiping someone, but it is not the God of the Bible. We may be worshiping someone and following after someone, but it is not Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Folks, don't you dare let any agnostic, agnostic rather, pundit on CNN or Fox News or wherever manipulate your heart into hating the people that God calls you to love and serve. You don't answer to those people. You don't answer to the Anderson Coopers and the Tucker Carlsons of the world. You answer to Jesus. And the Lord God of heavenly armies calls us to pursue good and not evil so that we may live. To hate evil and to love good so far as we can in this life establish justice. To treat people with fairness and dignity and respect, even our enemies. That's what Christ calls us to do. Folks, this is simpler than we realize. And it's also more challenging than we realize. Because I believe that the simplest thing that God calls us to do is to be faithful to loving and serving other people. Anybody can do that. But it's difficult. Because that means that we have to be good and generous, I believe, to everyone who crosses our path, whether friend or foe. And folks, I mean Everyone, be good to the poor, the poor family that lives down the block from you. Be good to the homeless man on the corner. Be good to the Muslim woman you meet. Be good to the black man down the street. Be good to the immigrant, whether they're documented or not. Be good to the drug addict, whether they're clean and sober or not. Be good to the atheist across the street. Be good to the gay person next door. It is to our shame and to the shame of the name of the God of armies that Christians in this country are not known for being people that scandalously, radically, humbly, forgivingly, otherworldly love everybody. We may not agree with what all of our neighbors do or how they live their life, 
But the fact that we are not known in this country as people that love our enemies is an indictment on the church. The fact that we're known to be self-righteous and hypocritical and always trying to snuggle up next to power and always trying to get our way is a shame. It's a shame on us. When we show only allegiance to our particular kinds of people, Jesus says, what honor is that to you? Even sinners love sinners. Didn't we just read that in Luke not, long too, not too long ago? Gentiles can do that. Pagans can do that. You show that you follow me by loving people that hate you, that despise you. We betray how little we care about the people that Jesus loves and came and lived and died for when we only love the people that are just like us. We show how little we care about the commands of Jesus when we only care about easy-to-care-about people. And Israel failed in her mission to be a light to the nations. And I fear so often, as the church, especially here in America, we are doing the same exact things they were doing. It may have been to some different degrees. You know, we may not be as bad about one thing or better about another. But the fact that I, I don't think anybody in our culture looks at us as a loving people that do what we can to love and serve even our enemies is clear. Society is not the problem. Our lack of love for God and others is the problem. We are the problem. Our sin and our idolatry is the problem. And in verses 16 and 17, kind of as almost a bookend to this passage or this image of this young girl that's dead in the street, the Lord, the God of armies, the Lord will let his people go on wailing in the squares and let them cry in anguish in the the streets because he's about to pass over his people. Pass over the people that love money and power more than him and his image bearers. He's going to pass over them in judgment. And wrath. And this brings us to our last section tonight, verses 18 through 27. And this is about the day of the Lord. Now, this is something that we've talked about recently, even in our own Second uh, Peter study. The day of the Lord. This, this can be defined in, in several different ways. In the Old Testament, it's, all, it's often referring to these various reckonings where the Lord shows up and reveals from his perspective his judgment on how Israel is doing. Now, when the New Testament talks about the day of the Lord, it's talking about this revealing apocalyptic event in which God will show his judgment on everybody, everywhere, for good. There is a coming future day of the Lord that's like the, fi- it is the, it's the day of the Lord of the day of the Lord. It's the, it's the granddaddy of them all. That day is coming. But here when we read about the day of the Lord, we're reading about a, um, a, a reckoning that happens several times throughout the history of Israel. And when these days come about, it's God, it's like he shows up to Israel 
as the judge, as, and he's taking them in, he's summoning them into court, whether they realize it or not, and he's going to show them, from his perspective, how they're actually doing. And so for those people that have, think they're doing right, that go to church all the time, but are brutalizing the poor amongst them, that are prospering but only unjustly by taking advantage of others, They may think they're doing well before God, but they are going to be surprised by the justice and wrath he's going to unleash on them. And that's why we get the Lord saying, Woe to you that long for this day of the Lord. Do you actually know what it's going to be for you? Do you know what it's going to look like for you? Clearly you don't because you wouldn't want to be rushing towards it. Now, before I get ahead of myself here, I do want to say that a lot of commentators think that this section, verses 18 through 27, is it's, uh, the, the core message of another sermon. So everything we've read about before, about Israel uh, being dead and gone, but seek me and live, uh, or otherwise that everyone will mourn for the death of Israel, all those 17 verses we read before, uh, theologians think that that is... One sermon of Amos. It's not all that he would have said, but it's a core summary of what his sermon was. And that's been altogether rejected. So here we are in another sermon. Amos is done crying his eyes out and begging for at least a remnant of Israel to repent. It seems clear that nobody's doing that. And so he says to the entirety of Israel, do you know what the day of the Lord is going to be for All of you, it will be darkness, not light. You won't be the, the, the little section in Goshen, in the land of Goshen, in Egypt, where the Lord still shines daylight while the rest of Egypt is in darkness. You're going to be plunged into the darkness too. It won't be that you're escaping the lion without consequences, you're going to run right out those doors, close the doors behind you, catch your breath, and look out in that lobby and see a bear is standing right there. And you'll think, maybe, maybe you'll get away from that, and you'll get home and you'll rest your hand on the wall. I can't believe I escaped a lion and a bear today. I got a little scratched up, but I'm okay. And as soon as you're saying that, a viper, a venomous viper is going to jump out from behind that wall and bite you and strike you dead. There is no escape coming for Israel. And verses 21 and 23 are supposed to be scandalous and shocking because God says, Israel, I hate all of your religion. I hate your festivals. I hate your services. I hate your offerings. I hate your worship songs. I hate your missions conferences, your vacation Bible schools, your cantatas. I hate it all because it reeks of hypocrisy and it clangs with the noise of godlessness. Your religion that you think that you can run to and appease me is nothing. And here's the key to understanding, I think, this whole book Do you know what I want from you, Israel? Do you know what would cause me to relent? Let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Do you know what the Lord loves to see in his people across the ages? 
justice and righteousness towards each other. Treating each other not only fairly and decently and without a whiff of any kind of prejudice, but even more than that, with grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's what the Lord requires of his people. As Martin Luther says, the Lord doesn't need your good works. Your neighbors do. Let justice, let righteousness, synonymous ideas, let them pour out of you. Let your life be so filled up with the everlasting water and living water of God that you are not only satisfied, but you let it pour out of you and quench another thirsty traveler in this dying and decaying world. That's the image there. Don't be like one of these wadis that we read about. Uh, I don't know. We had to look that up when we were reading the CSB. They talk about valleys sometimes, other translations. Wadi, what is that? Wadi is like a, is a, is a place that during certain seasons of the year gets some rain and water and it might retain a little water, but for most of the year it's a dry, barren thing. Don't be like that, where sometimes you have a little bit of generosity in you. You have a little bit of justice or grace or whatever in you, but most of the year you're bone dry. Be like a, a flowing river that's coming down from the mountain, an unstoppable stream of goodness in the world. That's what the Lord demands of Israel. He doesn't demand that they be sovereign. He doesn't demand that they be um, uh, particularly um, powerful. He doesn't demand they be rich. He doesn't demand that they be uh, t- talented or intelligent. He demands they be faithful to loving and being good to everybody. That's a real low bar that the Lord sets for us. He wants us to be the kind of people that are so filled up with his grace and mercy that we just pour it out on everybody else. But the sad reality is that Israel chose to worship other gods, even in the midst of this rebuke. And they became just like those pagan deities. When you worship a God, you become like the God you worship. Full of wickedness, depravity, and violence and selfishness. In verse 26, we read that God says that these people who were delivered by the great I Am and Him alone, they chose Sacketh as their king. They chose Kaiwan to be their God. Instead of worshiping the God who placed the Pleiades and Orion, these constellations in the sky, they're worshiping these vain Assyrian and Damascan sky gods. Sacketh, interestingly, is an Assyrian deity that's probably associated with the planet Saturn. They gave Saturn more credit than they gave the Lord. A Kaiwan, we don't know. It's an unknown star god. But the thing is this. While few of us as a church may worship stars in the sky like these pagan Israelites, I wonder what the temptation is for us as nice, civilized, modern people. What stars do we end up worshiping in Washington or Manhattan or Hollywood? Who are the stars that hang in the sky to us that we give all of our praise to? What powerful images do we exalt 
rather than stooping low with the Lord Jesus, who hung the stars in the sky and yet got on his knees and tied a towel around his waist and washed the feet of even his enemies. And speaking of stars, as we, as we wind down this evening, it's interesting that all throughout the Old Testament, when you read about stars, they're often worshipped and, and, and seen to be false god. And there's one that sticks out above all. In Isaiah, you read about Lucifer, the bright and morning star, Satan, the adversary. Here is this, this, this entity that we still don't really know that much about, if we look throughout the scriptures, this evil lying, proud, false god of this world who loves to deceive people into worshiping false gods and themselves and abusing others. He cast himself as the great and morning star. He's a being of light. He can trick us with his his pleasantness. He can deceive us. But you know what's so interesting about the image of, of Lucifer as the morning star? Is that there's another Star that comes along and eclipses him. The good news for us is that at the very end of the scriptures, at the very end, Revelation 22, Jesus calls himself the true morning star where light is. A star that will never go out. And the last chapter of the Bible, isn't that interesting? After we're chasing, it's almost symbolic as we're people that are constantly reaching for the stars, so to speak. We'll end up grabbing at Lucifer or Kaiwan or Sacketh or any other false god or idol. But Jesus is the final star that we read about in the scriptures. And I think Amos might ask us as a church tonight... When this final day of the Lord comes upon us, will we seek that star who is our Lord God and live? Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear the warnings that you speak through your prophet Amos. Help us, Lord, by leading us not into temptation to use and abuse your image bearers, to worship false gods and deliver us from the evil one who would deceive us and trick us and bring us down into hell with him. And Lord, instead, may we find our hope and our joy and our salvation only by seeking Jesus and living in him who lived and died and rose for us. For it's in his name that we ask and pray all these things. Amen.